Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're going to talk meditation, specifically Vedic meditation. And I had a wonderful conversation about this with Arden Martin. She is the founder of a new meditation studio in Soho, New York called The Spring Meditation, and she's also one of our pregnant students. I love that our community has such amazing people that just have such wonderful stories and just add to the community. So I had a wonderful opportunity to speak with Arden, and we talk about brought meditation to her life, how you can bring it into yours, how she's worked with it throughout her pregnancy, how it's helped her with depression, how she's planning on having it help her during parenthood. We'll we'll check in with her after and see how that goes. But it was really a very solid calming. I felt so calm speaking with her, calming conversation. So I hope you find that too. And just a reminder, if you haven't already, please take a moment to go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. It helps other people find us. So it helps us take our community beyond the four walls of prenatal yoga center and take us out into that whole cyberspace community where we can reach one another just by having a conversation through podcasts and through our website and through all our offerings. So thank you for taking that time and I hope you enjoy. Take care. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, Arden. How are you? Hi, Deb. I'm doing great. It's so good to talk to you. I'm so excited, especially after class yesterday when you were telling me about the kind of meditation that you do, which is different than what I've done. So I feel like I'm going to get a huge education. Um, So yay. (laughs) So let me jump into just simply what brought you to meditation. Sure. So meditation is something that I've always been aware of because growing up, my mom has always had um, an affinity for Buddhist teachings, and she has always had some sort of meditation practice. And for the longest time, meditation was always that thing my mom did. And I never really had any interest in it. But as you know, as a parent, the things that parents do have their way of filtering into our minds, whether we know it or not. So that awareness of meditation I found has really impacted me later in life. And when I found myself getting um, progressively more stressed as I grew older as an adult, it ended up being something that I resorted to when things got pretty dire with my own stress. And I should back up to say that I've always been a child who was really easily overwhelmed. Um, And I would even define stress as an experience of being overwhelmed physically or mentally. So in other words, I was a very stress-prone, worry-prone kid. I was that kid who didn't want to sit on Santa's lap. I didn't want to go to Disneyland and meet any characters. 
if a balloon popped, you know, I was running out of the room screaming. And I was just, I just remember always worrying as a child for no good reason, because I was very well supported and cared for. So that was always... Did your mom try to teach you meditation? I'm just curious, you know, so she was doing it and you saw it. Did she ever try to get you to sit with her? No, because she didn't really share her practice with me or the fact that she was doing it probably until I was in middle school or a teenager. And that wasn't really a time where I was interested in doing anything mom was doing. (laughs) (laughs) So no, unfortunately, she never was able to share it with me, but she definitely told me she was doing it. It was just not something that I was open to, to until later in life. So knowing what kind of a child I was, it would be no surprise to anyone listening that when I started to work and I started to teach elementary school, which is what I did before I started to teach meditation, um, all of that type A stress and all that self-imposed stress really started to come to a head, especially when I decided to take a position. I started teaching in New Jersey. Um, not sure if it's near where you are in Summit. Oh, um, yeah. I'm in South Orange, so very close. Yeah. So that was a wonderful experience. Um, very demanding, but wonderful. And then I decided I wanted a change of pace and decided to move to the city with my husband and teach in a school in Harlem with a totally different student population. And I ended up in an environment that was pretty turbulent. There were a lot of culture issues in my classroom, a lot of violence, a lot of emotional turmoil happening with my students. And it got to the point where my days were so chaotic and demanding that I knew I would not be able to sustain that work unless I had some sort of a proactive stress release practice. And that's when meditation kind of came back to me. I had always done yoga on and off, but it wasn't enough to really move the needle with my stress. It was a nice release when I was in the moment doing it, um, but it didn't really make any significant shifts for my mental well-being. So I knew I needed to go a little bit deeper and find something else. So living in Manhattan, I was lucky enough to find a meditation studio Um, I took a course in Vedic meditation, which is what I now practice and teach. And I'll explain later exactly what that technique is. But it, it led to such a profound shift in my relationship with stress and anxiety and just the way that I showed up in the world that I ended up deciding to change careers completely and teach it to others. Now, I'm kind of kind of divert here, but because I'm, I'm curious about the background of you as, as your childhood and meditation, and because I know a lot of parents listen to this, do you think that meditation can be introduced to kids? Because I've tried, and it could just be my kids, um, <laughs> <laughs> or the way I'm, I'm, you know, I'm serving it to them. I try to do some meditation with them because I do believe the impact it can have on calming the nervous system, on feeling grounded and getting quieter. And I've tried all different ways. I've had to try and have them on their back with like put a little rubber ducky on their belly so they can see it rise and fall. What do you think as a teacher and as a meditator and having had anxiety as a child, how do you think that can get translated to kids? Well, I wasn't fortunate enough to have any exposure to mindfulness or meditation, like kid-friendly versions of that when I was a child. But speaking from my experience as a classroom teacher, 
I do think that it's, it's certainly valuable. There's no harm in exposing kids to those techniques and giving those, giving them those for their toolbox. I know that one thing that, that happened, uh, really commonly in the kindergarten team where I used to teach in Harlem is they would teach the kids, um, you know, to have a bowl of spaghetti in their hands or imagine it there in their hands and to take a deep breath and smell the spaghetti and then exhale and then smell the spaghetti and exhale. And there's all kinds of little tricks like that, that can really stick for some kids. And I do think that it's good to teach them that there are mindfulness tools that they can turn to, to teach them about their breath. And even just the concept that they can control their breath um, is really valuable. But at the same time, I think that just like with anything else with kids, they'll only do things that they're ready to do and that resonate with them. And so the most powerful thing that you can do for kids is to be a model. Um, so if, if a child knows that you have a, like if your kids know that you have a meditation practice and they see you doing it, I think that's what's really going to make the biggest impact for them long term, because when they are ready, then they'll follow suit. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I always think about that. Like, how are my kids going to perceive how they grew up? You know, they heard mom singing all around and doing this crazy yoga stuff, and that's going to impact them on what to expect um, in our family, but then what they might gravitate towards. So absolutely. So can you explain a little different, of, a little about the different meditations? Because as I was mentioning, when you told me about your practice yesterday, I'm like, I'm totally lost on what you're saying. So, and I think yeah. there's um, maybe some misconception of meditation or a misunderstanding of how many styles and different schools Absolutely. It's so wonderful that meditation has taken on this really mainstream role in the wellness world. It's becoming totally normalized, which is great because, um, you know, it's normal to take your body to the gym and strengthen that. It's becoming more and more normal to devote time to improving the state of your mind as well. But the flip side of that is there's also a lot of misinformation out there about meditation and a lot of the practices have become diluted because everyone and their uncle has a meditation offering now. So, and, and the other thing too, is that meditation, that word is really about as specific as the word sports. It can look so many different ways and involve so many different experiences and techniques. So the way that I tend to break it down for people simply is to say that there are really two major categories of meditation, two major types that any technique would fall into. And the first one is what I would call focus-based techniques. So that's really anything where your mind has a point of focus that it um, keeps returning to, whether that's your breath, maybe you're doing breath awareness or you're counting breaths, maybe you're listening to a recording or an app or a teacher and your mind is focused on their voice, maybe you're doing some sort of visualization or, you know, those candle meditations where you're staring at the flame. It doesn't really matter, but with any sort of focus-based technique, your mind is focused on something which keeps it quite active. And oftentimes with focus-based techniques, your body is also rather active because you're encouraged to sit up straight. You may even have your hands in a special position or a mudra. 
So with focus-based techniques, your mind and body are often very active and anything that would be termed mindfulness would fall into this focus-based category. And all of those techniques have really um, wonderful and specific benefits if they are practiced consistently and correctly. And I've always really enjoyed doing those things, like some of those come into play at, at the classes at the prenatal yoga center, for example, and um, they do really wonderful things for the mind and body. I personally have found over many years of dabbling in different kinds of meditation and seeing what works best for me, that when it comes to actually doing a consistent daily practice on my own at home every single day, um, focus-based techniques have always felt like a lot of work because as a really active and busy person, when it's time to sit down and meditate at the end of the day, which is usually when I've had time, um, the idea of focusing some more is just, you know, not something that I've always had the bandwidth for. So I have personally never been able to consistently do any sort of focus-based technique on my own and keep myself accountable with it. And I feel that with any type of meditation, whatever it is that you practice, it has to be something that you really enjoy doing to the point where you actually look forward to doing it. Otherwise, you're not going to make the time for it. And in order for meditation to really lead to any sort of shift um, I really believe that it needs to be done very consistently. So for me personally, as far as a daily practice goes, focus-based techniques were not it. And I was fortunate enough, like I mentioned before, to stumble upon a whole other category of meditation techniques that I wasn't previously aware of and that most people don't know about. So there are focus-based techniques and there is also a type of meditation called an automatic self-transcending technique, which is a big mouthful. Um, we can think of that as a transcending technique for short. And so to transcend really means to go beyond, right? So in the context of meditation with a transcending technique, we are having an experience of going beyond the mind or going beyond thought. And what distinguishes a transcending technique like Vedic meditation, which is what I teach, from a more focus-based technique is that there is no focusing, no concentration, and really no effort involved. So if you were to watch someone practice a transcending technique, they would be sitting very comfortably. They'd have their back supported. I often do it sitting in bed or on the bus or wherever I can squeeze it in, but it's important for the body to be in a restful position. Their eyes would be closed and it would just look like they were silently resting. In fact, when I do it, actually, if I'm meditating in public, like on the bus or the subway, a well-meaning person will often try to wake me up because <laughs> I'm totally slumped over. My head is slouched. My shoulders are slouched. And I look like I'm passed out when, in fact, I'm wide awake and alert. I can hear the bus driver, you know, announcing the stops. But my body is so relaxed that I kind of lose all muscle tone and I'm able to get really, really deep rest. So the idea with transcending techniques is the body and mind are settling down from their most excited active state to their least excited state. And in that state of deep rest, we're able to release all of the stress and fatigue and tension that we accumulate throughout our busy days. 
At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Can so, I just ask a quick question? Yeah. So on this on the subway or bus, especially now that you're visibly pregnant and you're slumped over looking passed out, have <laughs> you ever had anyone really worried about you? Um, I have had people just very kindly trying to make sure I get to my stop, which always makes me laugh because I can hear everything going on. And so I just say to them, don't worry about it. I'm meditating. I'm getting off in two stops. I can Um, just imagine like seeing that as a, especially as a, you know, someone, a birth worker, if I looked over and saw a pregnant woman, (laughs) I would be really concerned. So, and you know, I, I do love when it happens because a, it, it restores my faith in humanity that people really do look out for pregnant women in the city and B, it gives me a chance to tell people this is what meditation can look like. You probably didn't know that before. Absolutely. So it's, it's great I think when that happens. I love that. I love that because the meditation I've done, one of the, one of my hesitations about really, I'm so bad at doing a super regular practice, but I often feel like I'm having to sit up very straight. And I like that you're really letting your body re- let go, um, you yes. know, let go of the tension. That seems pretty appealing. Yes, it's all about surrendering. And the way, the actual mechanics of the technique, because I'm sure that someone listening might be wondering, well, how do you just magically settle your body and mind into this deeply restful state? Um, we need a technique. We need, we can't just force the mind into quieting by way of effort or by way of thinking. Because if we think to ourselves, be quiet, be quiet, mind, stop racing around. We know, we all know that that doesn't work, right? So Mm -hmm. we need to resort not to effort, but effortlessness in order to settle the mind. It needs to be a very easy experience. And so with Vedic meditation, which is what I practice and teach, or with any transcending technique, really, the, the practice is generally involving using a settling sound to very naturally and easily settle the mind into that quieter state. Um, so when this technique is learned, because Vedic meditation is learned in person with a qualified teacher, part of the process is that your teacher assigns you a sound. Um, We call it a mantra. That can be a somewhat confusing word, though, because mantra can mean so many different things. But in the context of this practice, a mantra is a meaningless sound that very easily and naturally settles the mind into a quieter state when it's thought silently and when it's thought silently with least amount of effort, which is something that as a teacher, I teach people how to do. Because one thing that can be a barrier for some people with this sort of practice is we tend to associate success with effort, right? For Mm -hmm. our whole lives, we've been taught that discipline and effort and focus are going to lead to the best results and the most success. And in so many areas of life that can be true, but with meditation, 
we often have the most profound experiences when we're able to let go and be as effortless as possible. For, so for some people, especially if they come to a practice like Vedic meditation and they've dabbled in a lot of focus-based techniques, there can be a little bit of unlearning involved there. And that's where my job comes in. So can you give an example of a mantra that you might give? Well, the mantras that we give when we teach in person are meant to be kind of kept, um, not secret, but they're meant to be kept within the individual because the whole point, so these mantras are actually called bija mantras. So bija in Sanskrit means seed. And so what they're meant to do is really act like a literal seed. They're being planted in your consciousness and they're designed to take your mind from a very active, expressed state of thinking to a more subtle, settled, quieter state. And for that reason, we don't say the mantras out loud. We don't write about them on Facebook. We don't journal about them. They have no meaning. They're meant to be experienced very subtly and silently in our consciousness. And that's why they're given in person. And this whole practice is most effective when it's taught in person. Um, But there are also some universal mantras or settling sounds that you can find online, like one very common one is a hum. You may have heard Mm -hmm. that one. Um, So these mantras are all slightly different. They all have slightly different effects on the nervous system and actually different individuals benefit from using different mantras. And part of my training process as a teacher is to be able to know how to assign an appropriate mantra to a specific individual. But there are all kinds of mantras that work well, and a hum is an example of one that's pretty universally effective. Does the mantra ever change? Just say when you meet a student and you feel you give them the mantra that you feel would best suit them at that time, do they ever change to something else if their needs change? No, generally, um, the mantra that someone receives when they learn to meditate, they can use for life. There are elaborations to mantras that we can make slight tweaks to them as people become more advanced in their practice, but that's totally optional. And the mantra that you receive when you first learn is going to serve you well for the rest of your life. Oh, that's pretty amazing. So I want to back up a little bit because I'm realizing we're talking about benefits and we didn't really, for someone that's brand new and they're just starting to think of meditation, can you explain why? someone might want to choose to meditate in whatever manner and the benefits. So how is this going to serve them? Sure. Well, meditation has been around for thousands and thousands of years. And I should back up and explain because it's related to this idea that Vedic meditation, which is what I teach and is spelled V-E-D-I-C, is named that because it comes from the Veda, which is the ancient Indian body of knowledge um, that's five to 10,000 years old, depending on which scholar you ask. And it is the body of knowledge from which all forms of yoga and Ayurveda and Eastern philosophy come. So most of the meditation styles that you'll find today originated in very ancient traditions. Um, But of course, the reasons why we would meditate now in a modern context are very different from the reason why people might meditate have meditated thousands of years ago. And at least in my experience, the real benefit of a meditation practice, or at least one where you're able to settle the mind and rest deeply and even have an experience of transcending thought, having that experience of 
quiet and stillness is because it provides such a necessary contrast to the overstimulation that we experience in pretty much every other waking hour of our lives. And with Vedic meditation, it's really the only, and even, you know, actually with any, any style of meditation, I would say, if it's a silent practice, it's the only time in your day where you're not taking anything in because we tend to have lots of ways to relieve stress in our lives. We all have our go-to stress busters or ways of relaxing, but most of those ways are not actually a complete break from stimulation. So for example, one way of relieving stress that's really common for people is exercise. And I think the reason for that, especially with intense exercise, is because when we're exercising or moving intensely, we have an experience of being in the zone and we're able to feel fully present in what we're doing. And that's a really welcome break from all of the racing thoughts that we have throughout our day. The issue with that though, and although exercise has wonderful physical and mental benefits, and I think everyone should be doing it, um, it does put stress on our body and it is still a demanding activity. So when we find ourselves sick or injured, and even probably needing stress release more so than usual, exercise isn't an option. Um, another one would be a really popular stress buster would be kind of sitting and zoning out on your phone or zoning out with the TV. And although those things allow us to rest our bodies, our minds are not resting at all. They're still taking in lots of stimulation, lots of blue light, and they're not actually helping to chip away at the stress and fatigue and tension that we accumulate throughout the day they're really just allowing us to hit the pause button for a moment. So the value of meditation is that we're, we're totally, instead of overwhelming our systems like we do for most of the day, we're underwhelming our systems, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. And that's a big change in the nervous system. That's exactly. Oh, good. I'm glad to explain that. So as a meditation teacher, what are the most common resistances that you meet up with when you're introducing meditation to someone? Well, most commonly, especially with New Yorkers, it's <laughs> finding the time to do it. Um, it's A, finding the time to learn because I teach in person. I give people a technique over the course of four days for 90-minute sessions that take place over the course of four consecutive days. And then they have a technique that they're self-sufficient with and they don't need an app or even to come into a studio every time they want to meditate. They can just take it with them and make it happen whenever they have time. But the actual time to learn that self-sufficient technique is an investment and then actually fitting it in every day. So that's a really common concern for people. And like I said before, the key to making that work is to have a technique or a practice that you actually enjoy so much that it becomes a self-reinforcing habit. If it feels like work, if it feels like torture, or if you're frustrated because you're not sure if you're doing it right, it's not very likely that you're going to make the time to do it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I get that way. I Whatever I do a lot of exercise yoga, and while I love it after, I'm not uh, the yoga I love during. But like I, I think you heard me in class. My latest thing is I got this Peloton bike, which is my newest obsession, and I don't always love it 
during, and I don't even always love it getting myself there, but I love it after. So Mm -hmm. I can imagine, you know, if meditation was so arduous, no one would want to do it because, you know, it's hard to sit still. So I guess, yeah, if it's something that you're craving and that you really feel good with, it's going to be something you're drawn to. Yes. And I would even go so far as to say that if you find a meditation technique that works for you, it is a blissful experience in itself. Of course, the idea with meditation is not to Um, is not for the meditation to feel good. Of course, that's a nice bonus and that helps reinforce the habit if it feels really good while you're doing it and it doesn't feel like work. But it's important for me to mention too that we don't meditate to get good at meditating. We don't meditate to have wonderful experiences in meditation. We meditate to get better at life and to have better experiences when our eyes are open. But if you find a technique that gives you both, then that's even better. And I do believe that that's possible. When I actually do get myself to meditate, it feels amazing to pause. It just feels like I'm giving myself the permission to not have to go into all the to-do list. And it just gives me some space to get inside, get grounded, be in my body. Cause I don't, I mean, I'm not, I do a lot of that when I do yoga, but it just creates a little bit of space from all the, the tasks that I normally have to do. So Absolutely. I, yeah. And I just love how that goes. So since you're pregnant, let's jump into a little bit about how meditation has impacted your pregnancy. Oh, it's been huge. And it really has depended on the trimester, honestly, because it's given me a lot of relief, both physically and mentally. But if I think back to my first trimester, I'm 35 weeks now in my third trimester, but those first few months were really rough. I was pretty much feeling car sick 24 seven. And when I meditated, it was the only time of day. Cause I actually meditate twice a day with my practice. It's once in the morning for about 20 minutes before breakfast. And then once in the afternoon or evening for another 20 minutes before dinner, um, ideally. And those two times a day that I meditated were the only times of, in my waking hours that I did not feel nauseous and that I did not have a migraine headache. So it provided tremendous relief from those acute symptoms early on in my pregnancy, but it also has really grounded me so that when my hormones throw me for a loop, especially in this third trimester, um, I've been able to ride those experiences out with a lot more grace and, and groundedness, I think. One thing that really, really threw me off with this whole experience because this is my first baby is I had a lot of prenatal depression, especially in the first trimester. And depression is not something that I had experienced since high school. So it's been a really long time. And one of my bragging rights as a meditation expert and teacher is you know, stress, anxiety, and depression are just no longer a part of my experience because I meditate. And before I got pregnant, although it sounds almost too good to be true, that really was the case. I had struggled with anxiety and depression throughout my teenage and early adult life, and meditation had such a profound effect on that to the point where I really was just not dealing with them at all anymore. And my relationship to stress as well, changed so significantly that I was inspired to teach it and share it with others, I really didn't expect that I would ever have to deal with those things again. But as you know very well, 
pregnancy is very powerful. It mm-hmm. has the hormones are no joke. And I was really shocked that I was feeling depressed in, in my early pregnancy, but it was, it was there. There was no ignoring it. And in my third trimester, most recently, I've had a lot of anxiety crop up, which is another thing that I did not think I would ever have to deal with again because I have such an established meditation practice. But what I found, although I was a little bit discouraged at first and I was like, how is this possible? You know, what, what good is this meditation thing if I'm still feeling anxious and depressed in my pregnancy? But when I thought about it a little bit more, I realized that my experience of those things has been completely different now that I have my meditation practice because before... I was really identifying with those conditions and they were debilitating. Um, When I was depressed and anxious in high school, it was to the point where I almost was feeling like I wasn't going to be able to go away to college because I had such severe depression and some body image issues that were really making me feel like I was not ready to move across the country and, and start school. Whereas now I've been able to, when depression or anxiety comes up and my hormones are all out of whack, I'm able to kind of observe it. I feel separate from it, although it's happening inside of me, and I'm able to soften around it and, like we talked about in class, surrender to it and not resist it, whereas before I think I suffered so much because I was resisting it because I so didn't want to feel it, whereas now I'm able to just kind of sit with it and know that it's going to pass, and that's a total game changer. Well, it's really good that you found the meditation as a way to deal with it and cope. Um, my husband, uh, is a social worker and he's a, a drug counselor and he, you know, part of that, he talks about people that are drug addicts. It's often, it sounds, it just sparked me something so similar to what you said is they don't want to feel their feelings. And mm-hmm. instead of finding meditation as a, a surrendering, a coping mechanism, they often turn to a substance that right. will numb them in a way that they don't have to feel it. So, it's, I think, you know, for people listening, I don't, I think it's so easy to go to kind of the quick, easy remedy of drugs and alcohol instead of really leaning into the meditation, which is going to take you know, some work in some sense to really let yourself be in it and, and disconnect, as you said. So yes. I, we just, it was just such a similar thing that I've heard my husband say is they don't want to feel it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and resistance is really, in, even in meditation, if you resist thoughts, that's what's going to lead to a frustrating experience, right? So resisting anything unpleasant is really what's going to amplify the unpleasantness of it. And as soon as we soften around something and stop resisting, it, it makes the whole experience so much more bearable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm glad that you mentioned, though, even as a meditator, that you still experienced depression and anxiety, because I think it's going to make people feel like just that the experiencing have meditation can still have its ups and downs. You don't start meditation all of a sudden; everything's just clear sailing. I think I think, and sometimes then someone can be disappointed with themselves if, like, I've been meditating, I'm meditating, but yet I still have these feelings because we're still human. Absolutely. And one metaphor that really resonates with me is to think about a messy room. And if you have a room that's really cluttered, but the lights are off and it's dark, you don't really notice it. You're not really bothered by it. You just kind of keep chugging along. But as soon as you turn on the light, you can see the mess. 
turning on the light doesn't make the mess go away, Mm -hmm. but it actually puts you in a position where you're ready to tackle it a little bit. And I find that meditation does the same thing. Sometimes it kind of wakes things up in people where they're ready to make a shift, but it doesn't just all magically, problems don't magically disappear, but we find ourselves in a position where we're ready to actually up level and start to look at some of that stuff, which pays off in the long run, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. in the process. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So I, I kind of, one thing you said, I also, I kind of chuckled to myself is, um, 20 minute practice when you first get up and then again at night. So let's talk the reality of baby. Um, yeah. so- <laughs> I, I say this with the most uh, respect and love um, because I tried to do that. And again, it could just be me, but have, how have you planned out your meditation when baby comes? Because it may not be so spacious. Oh, we're, we'll probably have to do a follow-up and see how, <laughs> how's that actually working out for you now that you have someone attached to your chest 24-7. <laughs> so I really very much like with a birth plan, um, I feel like making a very concrete detailed plan for how meditation is going to go when the baby comes doesn't feel like the best use of my time because so often with babies, our expectations don't necessarily align with reality and and so much changes day to day from what I understand. So my intention is to meditate whenever I can. Um, I'm fortunate to have a pretty well-established practice under my belt at this point that it is something that is second nature for me to make a priority. So I've already done the work of making it a habit and now it's kind of there for me to throw in whenever possible. The other benefit of the practice that I do is it can be done sitting in bed. I don't need headphones. I don't need an app. I can just dive into it just with, you know, my own body and mind. So that will certainly come in handy when I just need to squeeze it in any time that I can. One tip that I've gotten from Vedic meditation teacher colleagues who have kids themselves is meditate when the baby sleeps, which is really interesting because usually we're told to sleep when the baby sleeps. And I'm sure that I'll want to do quite a lot of that as well. But that sounds like a really useful thing of if the baby's sleeping for 20 minutes and I can throw 20 minutes in there, I'll try that. I might end up meditating while holding the baby. And I think the wonderful thing about this practice being all about surrendering is I already have that attitude of whatever happens, happens, and just being able to go with the flow. That's been a huge benefit of meditation um, over the past few years that I've been doing it is I'm so much more able to just roll with things as they happen. And I'm sure that will come in handy when I have a newborn with me too. Yeah. I, I would bet you'd, you're going to meditate when you're breastfeeding as well. Oh, I, that's a great I idea. I found that I, that's something I did. Um, it just calmed me. It relaxed me. We know when the oxytocin is flowing and you don't have as much anxiety that the breastfeeding works better too. So, And you're already sitting with your back supported. I was supported, already so. well supported. I loved having my baby on my body and I was still, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't distracted. I didn't want to have my phone near the baby anyway. So I just, I had, I didn't have the TV on. It was just like, it was just quiet time. And so I used that for, it's probably the time I had the most regular practice meditation practice because it was right there for the taking 
That makes total sense. I actually never even thought of that, but it's a way of of making your breastfeeding session even more productive, so to speak. I will definitely try that. Oh, I'm so glad that helped. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I never would have thought of that. So I know know you and I talked a little bit about the idea of self-care during pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you've done? Yes, I am so passionate about self-care because it's such a it's such a heavily used term these days, but I think that actually putting it into practice is a lot easier said than done. I think there's an expectation for women, especially in parents to have their self-care dialed in, but a lot of us aren't really sure what that looks like. So I've been thinking a lot about self-care lately, just because in these final weeks of my pregnancy, it feels really important to create enough space in my day that I don't feel overbooked or rushed. And so self-care has really been on my mind. And when I think about what actually is self-care, I feel like there are two major components to doing it successfully because so many times we hear the word self-care and we think massage or manicure, pedicure, or whatever it is, glass of wine at the end of the night. And I really don't think that that's the whole picture. So I would define self-care as having two key components. And the first thing that's really necessary to do self-care right is to know yourself well enough to know, to be connected enough to your body and your own mental state and your needs in any given moment to be able to get back into balance and to really know what does it look like and feel like for me to be in balance so that you're able to kind of self-prescribe or self-diagnose, what do I need to get back to that point? Um, Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, that's actually how I start all the postnatal classes. Um, I've asked them to focus on, you know, where's the imbalance feeling? Do you need to feel more grounded? Do you need to feel more energized? And then while the needle may shift, it may not shift dramatically, but hopefully by the end of class, as we move through the practice, something shifts. So it's not about you know, an an indulgent self-care. It's more about an awareness of where the imbalance is. So I absolutely, as you said that, I'm like, oh my God, that's what I teach. So yeah. So to give a concrete example of that, I actually just encountered this last night. I oftentimes my work happens in the evenings because I teach meditation in the evening when people are free to come to my studio. So although meditation is a very calming and restful experience, teaching it actually drains a lot of energy from me. So when I come home from a long evening of teaching meditation, I feel very tired, but wired. I feel very wound up. Um, I've just used a lot of mental and emotional energy. And so I need to be able to balance that back out. And what that looks like for me um, as an introvert is not what my husband often wants it to look like, which is, oh, you're home. How was your day? You know, give me a hug. Let's interact. Let's engage. For me, that's the last thing I need after a long evening of teaching. What I need and what self-care looks like for me in that moment is going into the bedroom, giving myself a little foot massage with some almond oil or something, slapping on a pair of socks and not talking at all. That's what it takes for me to get back in balance. And, um, so that's that's what I mean when I say that self-care really needs to be self-prescriptive, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be able to know in what way am I out of balance right now and what does it take for me to get back to that place? And that brings me to the second 
ingredient in successful self-care. It's not just about knowing what you need, what you need mentally and physically in a given moment to get back to balance, but it's also just as important to have the deserving power and to love yourself enough to actually give yourself that thing and to claim that thing. Because it's one thing to know what you need and quite another to actually allow yourself to receive that thing. And I think for women and for mothers especially, it's really easy to shrug off our own needs. And so it's just as important to be able to say, this is what I need right now, even with that situation last night, to be able to say to someone, um, this is what I need right now and I'm going to go do it, even if it's for five minutes. Otherwise, you know, what good is self-care if we're not actually feeling like we deserve it? I 100% agree. It's something I'm actually trying to teach my kids is Mm. sometimes they get upset with me if I'm doing something for myself. Um, On the weekends, I do some sort of either exercise or yoga practice. And especially my son, he wants me to always be with him. And I remind him that I need to take care of myself because these things that I'm doing make me feel better and calmer and more grounded. And if I don't, I'm more uptight and more resentful. And I want him to see that while he's incredibly important to me, and that if I don't take care of my needs, I'm not going to have anything left for those that need me. And I'm trying to teach him to respect others taking self-care as well as for him to honor if he has needs. You know, my daughter is not quite getting it as much, you know, at four, but she... (laughs) Um, But I do, I'm really trying to teach them to respect that I'm not mother and only mother, that I'm still a person. And to- oh, that's amazing. And I'm sure that even though they're in the process of understanding that right now, if you fast forward five to 10 to 20 years, they're going to be embodying that themselves because they kept hearing it from you now. So that's incredible. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's something I'm very passionate about. Because I think, and and when you, you know, when baby's out and you're really tending to it, it's so easy to fall into the trap of, of giving yourself up as a mother and a person and just caring for a child and losing the essence of you. So it's something I really try to teach them is, you know, I'm more than mommy. Yes. And I would say that if anyone who's listening now is currently pregnant, at least what I've found is that pregnancy is the perfect time to practice all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Because with anxiety being such a common experience in pregnancy, I think that manifests itself in a lot of nesting, right? A lot of to-do lists, a lot of trying to get, get things it all done, done. <laughs> and be, be really, really active while you still can. And then that can lead you to feel like once baby comes, you know, you don't really have any energy stores because you were so busy during your pregnancy trying to do all the things. So I think pregnancy is really a perfect time to intentionally slow down, create space, really practice assessing what do I need right now? And can I, do I actually have the strength and self-love to, to claim it and give it to myself? Because it'll be so much more difficult to make that happen when the baby's here. And on the other side, do I really need to do this? There's so much like I have to get this done. And then the pause of, well, maybe I don't need to do that. Maybe I can slow down. And like you said, the, I really embracing slow down. Cause I think we don't always give ourselves that permission to have That's space, right. especially in New York. I feel like, you know, there's that constant chug of energy. Yeah. I was just saying to my chiropractor today that I know I actually assess whether I'm pacing myself correctly 
based on whether I'm moving slower than the collective in New York City. <laughs> because <laughs> if I'm on pace with everyone else, I need to slow down as a pregnant person. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I love everything you've said. I wanted to see if there's any suggestions for someone that's now listening to this and like, ooh, meditation, I think I want to start. So what are some suggestions for starting a practice? So it depends on what the person is feeling inspired to do, but the universal recommendation I would give is consistency is key. So if you really want to start out with something low stakes and you just want to try sitting for a few minutes every day, um, doing whatever feels comfortable, it should A, be something that feels very easy and enjoyable for you. Because if you're doing something that requires a lot of effort or focus or concentration, um, and you're getting frustrated, you're not going to probably continue with it. So do whatever feels easiest for you when you're first starting out. And that's going to lead to you developing some consistency around it. Because with meditation, like with anything else, if you want to move the needle, consistency is absolutely key. Um, I am definitely biased in the sense that I, I've found a practice that works best for me that happens to be um, the people are most successful with it when they learn in person. So I would encourage anyone who resonated with my description of a transcending technique or a technique like Vedic meditation to find a teacher and learn in person. So that's something that can be done easily in New York City. There's about 10 or 12 teachers of Vedic meditation that I know of, and I have colleagues all around the world, actually. So if anyone is feeling inspired to learn that particular technique, they can always email me. I'm Arden at thespringmeditation.com. And I do this all the time where people reach out and they want to find a teacher in Austin, Texas or Boston. And I'm happy to connect people with a teacher if they want to go a little bit deeper. But for anyone who wants to establish a daily meditation practice, I would always say to go to make sure that it feels easy and pleasant because you want to like it enough that you'll actually make the time to do it every day. Wonderful. So you mentioned your contact information. Where else can people find your work? So all of the offerings that I currently have are at my studio in Soho, which is called The Spring. We opened at the end of last year, 2017. And our website is thespringmeditation.com. So not only do we teach Vedic meditation courses there every week and offer regular group meditations for the graduates of our Vedic meditation course, we also offer wellness workshops every month on everything from Ayurveda to essential oils to functional movement to organizing um, that anyone is welcome to come and attend. So the springmeditation.com is where people can find more information about all of those offerings. Oh, this is so exciting. Thank you so much for sharing all this. I think that the community that's listening will really benefit. I feel like, you know, the word meditation's thrown out so much and it's gotten a little watered down, but you really gave a sense of the essence of it, why to do it, how to do it, more importantly, how people can do it with you. <laughs> oh, good. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad that it resonated. And I have to thank you too, because my experience going through pregnancy with the support and resources from the prenatal yoga center has been an absolute game changer. So if anyone listening is in New York City and hasn't been to the prenatal yoga center yet, <laughs> you need to get yourself there. Oh, I really appreciate that. So before we sign off, just one quick question for those listening, or especially those that may want to study with you. Are you going to take time off uh, after baby? I will be taking 
at least a month. I'm going to try for all of July and half of August, and then I'll be right back to teaching. But I have three other colleagues at my studio this spring who are teaching regularly. So anyone who's interested can access the spring and all the offerings, whether I'm there or not. Good. All right. So the power can keep going. The the message. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Arden. I really appreciated your time. Thank you, Deb. It was great talking to you. Be well. Bye. You too. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.